Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains, mental health, and disabilities, and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge the lands from which we recorded this podcast and from where you are listening are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here together. We continue to learn about the history that came before us and encourage you to do the same. Canadian director Lindsay McKay had a brain aneurysm that almost killed her. She joins us today to talk about that experience, the warning signs that can happen, but sometimes don't, and what the aftermath and recovery can be like. We also discuss how Lindsay used the experience of her brain aneurysm to inform her direction of Kate Hewlett's The Swearing Jar, and how Lindsay adjusted her work environment to better serve her brain. Quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. And now, Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Thank you so much for joining us on Brains. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're going to start with the biggest and most difficult question. Um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Oh, my gosh, that is so difficult. Uh, <laughs> I am a writer-director. Um, seem to be directing a lot more than writing, but I need to get back into writing. Um, and I'm based in Toronto. And yeah, that's what I do. We know that you have have had a brain aneurysm. So we'd like for you to explain um, what is a brain aneurysm? What causes them? And what are the signs? And how do you know it's going to and how did it happen? Sorry. And how did it happen for you? Okay, so I'm not the expert in this in any way or form. So like, no one take this to heart. Mine was really, really like unexpected. And just I didn't even know uh, that I had one. And you know, brain aneurysms are basically bulges in uh, veins. You can have an aneurysm everywhere in your body, essentially. <laughs> but a brain aneurysm is one that's in your brain, a bulge in a vessel, a blood vessel in your brain that essentially erupts or ruptures and generally causes death. And so they take years to develop. Mine had been developing for a long time, probably without me knowing. Signs that I've been told now of like, them developing our headache, headaches behind your eyes. And generally, that's it. I was not getting headaches. I, I had no, I had no real warning, which is also can be brain aneurysms as well, like they can come out of nowhere. Um, so I had no real warning. I was fortunately in Canada at the time, because um, at that point, I was living part time in Los Angeles. 
And so I was in Canada at the time and I was in my parents' basement running on a treadmill. And obviously my blood pressure was quite high and that was what caused the vein to ultimately give out. And yeah, it was really intense. What immediately happened and like, what was that aftermath? Like what happened in that moment? Because you're like in the basement, I'm assuming alone. They describe it as like a thunderclap and it really, (laughs) I, I now can't think of any other way to describe it other than like it feels like, it feels like a thunderclap in your brain. And so what I remember of happening, because like, you know, it could all be pretty blurry and strange. I had an insane headache, like it struck and it was very specific. And I lost function of my body, like my the right side of my body stopped working. So I jumped off the treadmill, by which I mean, I pulled the emergency cord, which I've never done before. Feels very extreme. Um, and tried to make it upstairs because I was in a basement and remember kind of was waking up because I was vomiting so I had collapsed obviously on the floor and was then vomiting I guess because of the pain and thank god I was on my side I heard somebody upstairs so I kind of cried out for help and my dad bless his soul um came down and was obviously terrified and kind of got me seated and tried to assess me and then was like okay we're gonna go to the hospital do you think you can make it to the car? And I was an idiot and said, yes, because I wanted to power through. And um, and so we tried to go to the car and I passed out in the garage. So my poor dad had to go through CPR. And then this is like when I've been told. So then he had to do CPR. Then someone random guy was working a random shift who was trying to intubate. And he came in an ambulance and intubated me. That's the only reason I'm alive. But he did chip my tooth. So like, you know, I mean, that cost a lot of money to pay it. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'll take Was he just coming by? Like he was just driving by? No, they called an ambulance. And my parents live in a small, a very tiny town that, you know, the ambulance aren't generally funded for people with that kind of skill set um, to intubate people. And he had been, he decided to take this random shift in this town, I think, is what I've been told. And so then he was working and could intubate. People that work in these ambulances in that area aren't normally trained to intubate. And then they took me to the hospital and they thought I was on drugs. So they kept like asking my parents, like, oh, come on, she was on drugs. Like she was just, too-. and my parents were like, we think we fell on drugs. Oh no. I don't think taken a bunch of drugs and then got on a treadmill. <laughs> but like, oh. wait, was it the middle of the day as well? Like just on the treadmill? Yeah. And then they took me to London, Ontario, and we're trying to figure out what was going on. And then uh, obviously discovered that I had had a brain aneurysm. So then the hardest part, I think, for my parents was they were taken to a private room. Um, and people are always like, when you get a private room in a hospital, that's not good. <laughs> and they were told to contact anyone that would want to say goodbye, essentially. So then they flew in my brother and my sister, who both don't live in Ontario. And then they all came <laughs> say goodbye to me and then they brought me out of the coma and I was like what's going on guys why am I here (laughs) I thought I had had a facelift (laughs) okay so the the hospital's initial reaction is you're a drug user and then your reaction of coming out of a coma is I must have had a facelift (laughs) well it was the only thing I was trying to when I came out of the coma I was trying to deduce what had happened to me like I didn't remember anything yeah 
of the actual event. So I was like, okay, my, cause my face was really numb and it still is slightly numb, like residual effect of the whole thing. And I had like, I had a brain drain. So everything mm. was like, a ta- everything was like focused on my face. And because I didn't remember what had happened to me, I was like, <laughs> did I, like, is this it? Like, what? Why am I here? Did I get it? And then I was like, so angry at my mom because I was like, why would you let me get this? <laughs> when I came out of the coma, I was, my memory was like, I was like a goldfish. It was like three seconds long. So my parents are unbelievable. Like they are incredible. And my mom was really brilliant where, because I would wake up and I'd be so confused and so scared. And there was a period of time where I would like grab at things. So they would tie my arms down. I started to remember why I was in the hospital, but I couldn't really fully remember why. And so my mom was amazing and put a note on the end of my bed that said like, read your book. Like, so when I woke up, I'd see this note and then I saw read your book. And then I'd look over and there was a book on my side table. And so I would open it up and it would tell me what had happened. To me. It's 50 first dates. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this with is like, for real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with your mom. Yeah. That's awesome. It was basically functioning as my brain. Like it would, I knew who I was. I knew what I did. I had a similar sense of humor, which gave the doctors a lot of hope. But my short-term memory was just like non-existent. So, so the book became my like lifeline to like understand what was going on in my life. How long were you in a coma before you woke up then? I think it was pretty short. I was in a medically induced coma because I think they kept telling my parents, we think it's a medically induced coma. <laughs> and I think they, they just had to do that because I had essentially had brain surgery. So it was just like, let the brain heal and then slowly brought me out of the coma. And the right side of my body was screwed up. So I, I like couldn't walk for a while and I, it was insane. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what the recovery process was like? Like, I obviously physical, emotional for sure, and psychological. Like, what, what did you have to go through? Yeah, it was really intense. This whole podcast is going to be me gushing about my family because they were unbelievable. It happened in July, the beginning of July, and I think I ended up leaving the hospital at the end of September. I was in, like, the university hospital in London, Ontario for probably a month and a bit. And then I went to a rehab. They took me to a rehab center for another month and a bit. So for me, the the intense thing about it was that I was me. Like I felt like me, my humor was there. My sense of self was there, but my memory wasn't, it was the way I imagined Alzheimer's to be, but I was having the reverse. Like I was, my memories were slowly coming back to me rather than I I was losing them. And the things that really, really troubled me were all short-term memory. Like if I had been eating food and you covered that food and asked me what I was eating, I would not be able to tell you. Like my memory was so, so short. And direction was like the most, and still is slightly difficult for me. If I left my room, the like trauma of trying to get back to my room was like really intense. Like I would get really nervous about it and terrified that I wouldn't be able to find my room again um, because I couldn't navigate simple spaces. Was there also physical rehabilitation you had to do? What were all of the people in your life medically, I guess? Yeah, I did. I did a lot of physical rehab. My leg wasn't working. So my right, I had a drop foot on my right side and my right leg wasn't fully functioning. So I did a lot of rehab for that, came back pretty quickly. And then after I was in the hospital, I had like outpatient rehab for a while, which was just like how to integrate into real life. 
And I was like, you guys don't realize my life wasn't like normal. Like, <laughs> I don't think they ever had a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Like they were really preparing me to like return to a desk job. And I was like, well, I'm a desk job. <laughs> Essentially, I was told that I would never return to filmmaking when I was in the rehab center. And I'm someone that really... Uh, you tell me I can't do something and I'm going to prove you wrong. Doctors would have meetings with my parents being like, she's never going to function at the levels that she was functioning at before, which is probably still true. So they they were like, maybe she should go back to you know college and learn how to be a secretary or an accountant or something that's like structured because they, they were like, her brain will function better in structure, which is true. But... I needed to prove them wrong. In the rehab center, they were like, okay, do now we have to do long division. And I was just <laughs> like, could I do this before my brain aneurysm? <laughs> like, I couldn't do that now. <laughs> but like, that's not a skill I had. <laughs> Masters, right? I'm like considered highly educated in that form. So then they were testing me in like high to like return to highly educated. <laughs> and I was just like, guys, the standard is I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> Don't do math, bro. Like, I can't do long division by hand. Like, I don't even know what that is. And they were like, well, you should be functioning at this level. And I was like, I never functioned. <laughs> so your standard is way off. So after I got out, I was in, I went to a speech therapist for probably four months. So that was part of the rehab, which was interesting to me because I didn't fully understand what speech therapy was. And I assumed it was because I like couldn't speak or I like couldn't form sentences. But I think it was just to try and get me to feel that I had been. Then I had a woman in Toronto that wanted to study me. So I went to see her a few times in terms of rehab. Because what ended up happening was they just didn't understand how my brain was working. Like the the part that was damaged and the troubles that I was having didn't link up. So they were very confused about my brain. The surgeon that performed the surgery on me that saved my life, I didn't see him until I was in the rehab center, I think. Or maybe it was after I was out of the rehab center. And I walked into his office and he was floored. Like he was just like, what? wait, what's wrong with you? And I was just like, oh, my, well, my short-term memory was like affected. And he was like, what? Why is your short? Like, I thought you would be paraphrased. He essentially was like, I thought you'd never walk again. The damage of your brain that I thought we had caused or affected was that you would never move again. Oh, inter- wow. And I was like, nope, I'm walking, but I can't remember anything or where the car is parked. <laughs> So I can understand why somebody might want to investigate your brain. <laughs> that sounds yeah, like exactly. really interesting. Yeah, My brain is so weird. How long was that transition from the time you had the aneurysm to coming back to your new life? Yeah. It was a while. So it happened in 2017. The first time I was on set directing again was in 2019. Mm-hmm. It was complicated and difficult. The whole thing is, is like my taste was still there. And and so like my opinions were still there, <laughs> uh, which is a big part of directing. Mm-hmm. But um, the way your short ter- short-term memory has to like function really quickly in that environment was pretty overwhelming to me for coming back. Ghost BFF, was a web series that I did with Vanessa Matusi and she brought me back to do the second season, which was like a really nice way to get back to being on set because it was, you know, with everyone that was in it was in the first season mostly. So it was like with cast that I was familiar with um, and a safe environment because Vanessa, I really love Vanessa and it felt very safe. 
I feel very fortunate for that experience to be able to like come back with, you know, a family in a way that um, was aware of my experience and still wanted me to participate. It felt like a good stepping stone to see if I was capable of doing that. And then pandemic hit and I was offered an, uh, the swearing drug. And we were supposed to film in 2020. (laughs) 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 Um, And obviously the world had other choices. So then I had another year of getting myself in order before we then went to camera. I think the things that change for me is like learning how like to use my, the, the way my brain currently functions, how to support it, like figuring out ways to how to support the moments of lacking and also giving myself a lot of empathy because mm. what I've realized is that I, when I was in recovery, I was functioning under the, the mindset of everyone's like, I need to get back to a hundred percent. Like, you know, ugh, my brain has to be functioning at a hundred percent. Like, and the realization I've had over the course of the, this recovery is that no one functions at 100%. <laughs> like, yeah. there's no such thing as 100% with memory. Like, memory is subjective. Certain things stick more because of, you know, an emotional attachment to it or, you know, a horror or, like, a shame. Um, and so, and and we formulate stories in our minds around memories to kind of keep them deeper or allow them to stay. And so giving figuring that out and giving myself some leeway for some forgiveness has been a huge part of me also I like have this thing where I when I'm around people and like they don't remember something I'm like yes <laughs> you're like I do <laughs> I, I win this one check <laughs> check I'm <getting> <laughs> I think that's like universal um what you just said there for all of us to like remind ourselves that you know, that whole thing of supporting where your brain is at is right now. We talk about that in many of our podcasts about putting ourselves in the best environment, how we can support ourselves the best because everybody's brain is different, whether it's from an injury or from a mental illness, like, and we all need different things to be the best selves we can be. So I think that's really wonderful. Yeah. Now you kind of did the segue for us, which is great. So uh, the swearing jar, you directed the swearing jar which is a uh, Canadian romantic musical drama film, is what uh, Wikipedia says, <laughs> um, <laughs> adapted from Kate Hewlett's musical play of the same name. I know it premiered at TIFF in 2022. I was there in the audience and it was <sighs> amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about the film and then we'll go from there? It's the kind of a tale of a woman's journey through kind of overcoming her grief ultimately it kind of follows this storyline and and gives you bits and pieces in a really um, intricate and lovely way that was exciting to map out with the actors and with my creative team I'll read out the blurb that's here it's the film stars uh, so it's Carrie a music teacher who stages a concert of music about the relationship as a birthday present for her husband Simon only to be drawn into a dilemma when she also begins to fall in love with Owen, the guitarist she hired to help perform the concert. So it gives away no spoilers. Yeah, that's that's but, way better than me. But we might have to spoil a little bit of <laughs> our next question. So one of the characters in the film has a brain aneurysm. Did the team know that you had experienced this before you were brought on? The other thing that my family did that was really quite beautiful was they, my parents were really protective of me and my career and of me making the choice as to whether or not I could return to my career or like how I would navigate telling people. 
So at the time, I was in rewrites on a movie with a producer who I'm very, very good friends with. And so they told her, because obviously she was waiting on like drafts. From me. <laughs> like, what's happening? <laughs> no, we're not coming. Um, so they, they ended up telling her. And so she... She obviously knew. And then there were there was pockets of people within the industry that I'm friends with that knew, but like nobody really in the capacity of like just work colleagues really knew. But the way I got the job was through my the producer friend of mine that really knew. Um so she recommended me to Jane, who's one of the producers on the movie. And Jane and I had known each other for a few years. And so they reached out to me. Jane and Kate, the writer, reached out to me. They sent me the project. And then I interviewed for it. I kind of talked about it a little bit. Like I was like, you know that this is blah, blah, blah. But I don't think they understood the gravity of the amount of work I had to do to get back to functioning again. So it was very easy to be me. But um, behind, behind closed doors, I was doing a lot of really hard work to return. So they knew about it. And then I had to, I pitched for the project because it wasn't a guarantee that it was mine. In my pitch package that I made for it, I like referenced my own experience in terms of how I connected to the material and how mapping it out would be interesting for me. Hopefully something that they wanted to hire me as a result because they thought maybe I could connect to the material. I don't know. So what was the rehabilitation that you were doing even at this point when you were interviewing for The Swearing Jar? I mean, I feel like I still do it. So post-brain aneurysm, the things that I find that work best for me and the way in which my brain functions best, essentially, is that... So I meditate. I'm a big meditator. I meditate every morning for um, a half an hour. And then when I was interviewing for The Swearing Jar, I was, you know, still directions and stuff like that were still difficult for me. So I, I was doing a lot of, like, training myself to not rely on my phone as much. And I used to do... I'm blanking on the name of the app, but it was... It was an app that the rehab center had told me I should do. Um, so I was doing that pretty regularly. I test myself a lot. So, you know, it's like get somewhere without using your phone or before I even look at my phone in the morning, I try and be like, what are the things on my schedule today? So generally, the way in which my brain functioned before was I would have the shot list in my head. Like it would just kind of, I would know what it was. And so this obviously wasn't... Wasn't there? Making lists and checking stuff off is like a really beneficial thing for me now. Um, But hilariously, I did what I would do prior to a brain aneurysm, which was change it all while we're doing it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that wasn't great, so I would rely on you know your script suit more than you normally do, which is also hilarious because I'm again being like oh, this could just be a normal thing that a director generally asks for. <laughs> but I'm feeling lesser than because I'm like, can I see this? But they aren't bothered by that. You know, they're like, oh, this is pretty normal. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm supposed to be 100%. For me, it's a lot of like calming, like learning how to calm yourself. So like at nights I go for walks or like just I, I function really well in routine is what I've discovered about my brain. So setting kind of routines, even in the schedule of, filming just finding ways to like every morning I would still wake up early enough to have a coffee and meditate and then I would have a good meal at night and I try and go for a walk it's just like balancing yourself and creating things that you can check off to provide some type of routine or safety (laughs) I looked up a stat as we were talking and it said um, that 
25% of people with brain aneurysms die within 24 hours. And then within three months after that, another 50%. Wow. Usually. So it's like a 70, I'm going to just say general 75% mortality rate, which is very high. So, you know, it's something that you, well, that you almost died from. What was it like to direct a film with that was something that was such a huge moment and then, like, how did that experience, like, I know you said you talked to the actors, but how did that experience affect the way that you directed the film? So much of directing this movie was about a comeback. It was beautiful and a little bit crazy and terrifying that it was related. So it, like, linked up thematically so clearly to, like, my own experience, which made it feel even just more important that I do it. Um But for me, what was such a driving force was for me to be like, I can do this. Like, Mm -hmm. it's also the first time I've been hired on a feature that I didn't write. The next thing I, in a lot of ways, it was, it was beyond the experience that I had prior to a brain aneurysm, which is, was terrifying, like terrifying to be like, (laughs) I'm capable of doing this, but this is like beyond what I was functioning at before I even had a brain aneurysm. So it was just like, can I meet it and excel and and do well? I was always terrified of all of these things. But the only way for me to prove to myself that I'm capable of doing it is a jump. And being okay with failure. I mean, the investors wouldn't have been. um, But I knew I wouldn't. I knew I wouldn't fail because I knew I had a great team and I knew I had incredible actors. And Kate's script was really beautiful. So I just had to I had to film it in a way that elevated that. I feel like you did a beautiful job. I think you succeeded in proving to yourself and to the world (laughs) that you're back. (laughs) Yes. Was there anything that was in the script that because you've experienced a brain aneurysm that you were like, actually, we should do it this way instead or that you shifted because you have this experience? The way in which it was it was written in the script, which I think was like important was that there were markers. And for me, there were no markers. In fact, it was me helping, or me and Patrick talking about how these markers kind of build up for him, which was always really interesting. And because he would be like, well, was it that way for you? And I'm like, oh, no, it wasn't that way for me. (laughs) Narratively, that works. And it is something that happens to people, like continual headaches and specifically headaches behind the eyes and things like that are signs. So if you have those kind of things, go get them. Go get a scan if you can. And if you have a family history of it, go get a scan if you can. But for me, that wasn't my own experience. We did have like a pretty frank conversation about my own experience of like the moment it happened. And the way in which we depicted it with him was a bit different than my moment, but it was because it, of the way it was scripted. I thought it played quite nicely. I think so, yeah. In directing, in, in creating this set, how did you create the optimal set for you and how yeah. your brain needed to have that support? I didn't fully on this one. Like I feel I, it was a, it was a huge learning curve. I did do as much as I could. And now I'm, I've learned quite a bit. So for me, the thing that I realized pretty quickly was how reliant I am on my crew. So prep was like so important for me. There are directors that work differently and I never worked this way even before my brain aneurysm, but there are some directors that just show up with a shot list and give their crew the shot list and then it's like execute where I don't function that way. So I did a lot of prep with my cinematographer and a prep with my editor. 
prep with my production designer. And I did this before my brain aneurysm, but it became so essential post my brain aneurysm. So for me that I, I knew that when I was flailing or when my brain was like not able to function in all, because you're there's so many things that you have to think about. Um, and when I wasn't able to do that, I knew that I had shared brains with these people because I had done so much prep with them. I do all of my shot lists with my cinematographer. We act out scenes, we try things so that he knows as much as I do about like the points and the beats and the things that I want to capture from the scene. So that when I'm pulled in another direction and my brain isn't fully functioning to be able to think about what we have to do in that shot, he can step up for me. The next thing I do that second eye. So I guess my main thing was I just became incredibly reliant on allowing everybody else to step up too. And then, and then trying to just be the guiding force in that in terms of vision. I love it when I work with directors that are like, we are together and we're collaborating together. And I feel like every project I do that has that, that environment, it's just takes it to the next level because we're all putting a little bit of ourselves into it. Like wet bum had been like that as well. Like my key crew on that, I really loved as well. So it's to me, it was funny because it wasn't that different than, than how I normally collaborate, but I just recognized that I was just relying on them a bit more. In Wet Bum, it was like, let's play. Yeah. But I'm going to like, I'm going to move away. And then this, it was like, let's play. And who's got the best idea? (laughs) 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 But but yeah, it was great. That's awesome. (laughs) So what's something that's that's new that you've taken on along the way? I feel like we learn something new every project. I do the same thing. I'm like, oh, next time I'm going to do this. With the swearing jar, Adelaide was so exceptional. And so it was was me really um, shifting with actors and learning to really trust them not that I didn't before uh but we had one day of rehearsal with her in the location and in that day she she changed so many things so many things that I was like oh this is gonna work with my shot list but in the changing of it it was brilliant and I was just Mm. like I need to throw everything out and I need to start on your instinct became this beautiful collaboration for me so I think for me a big part of the swearing jar was like that relationship with actors, trust imbued in that. For those filmmakers who want to include an experience of having a brain aneurysm on screen, what other ways would you like to see it depicted? I think something I want to do is the recovery. Because like, obviously, you can see people dying from it all the time. Like, that's an easy way to kill someone off pretty quickly. (laughs) Yes, which I think happens uh, often. (laughs) Sudden death? Oh, it's an aneurysm. What I'm curious about doing, and I'm trying to figure out how to do it kind of in a like story about me and my family coming through this thing or in a thriller scenario, but like essentially coming from having Alzheimer's, the way in which my rehab works, which was just like not trusting myself in any way or form. The way in which we form self is based on memory, right? And the way in which we understand relations to other people is based on memory. Like it's all... We create stories for ourselves about who we are, and that gives us our sense of self. And so having lost that and then slowly regaining it is a really interesting to me. I'm curious to try try and figure out how to do that. We'll see. As soon as it's a thriller, I was like, oh, what a good thriller. Like that would be... <laughs> right, well, like sorry, she wakes like, up from the coma and she, there's like a man beside her and he tells her what their relationship is and so she's just kind of believing it because like what else are you supposed to do in that scenario yeah i was thinking about the book like how the book gets changed Mm. shifting everything yeah it's like in memento where he doesn't he's tattooing himself except you're creating something that someone is 
actively changing. So mm-hmm. you don't even have, yeah, that Ooh. and that lack of trust. Anyways, it's all happening as we as we brainstorm <laughs> this brain editing film. So we'll have a meeting about this after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll meet up afterwards. It's fine. Do you have any resources that you'd recommend for people who who are recovering that help or things that helped you understand what happened? The thing that I've been doing that I think has been like weird and slightly helpful is just reading autobiographies of people that have gone through things. Like I read um, "Brain My Brain on Fire, I think it's called. Yeah. And then I read Educated. And now I'm, I'm currently reading Sarah Polly's book. And so to me, I don't know why, <laughs> but there's something really interesting. And then maybe it's about like seeing how people come through something and then like parse it into making sense that I'm really enjoying. Oh, I also read this incredible, sorry, this is just a book plug because I love it. There's this book called On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Young. It has nothing to do with like health or, I mean, there's health elements in it, but it's just really beautiful to see how people kind of encapsulate their lives and kind of have some perspective on it. Just seeing how people move through things or past things and how, and, and how they understand them. And maybe it's just like me trying to also figure out how I'm doing that for myself. The thing that I love so much is Muse. I meditate, which I was told to do in the rehab center. And I'm a very competitive human being. Um, hence why it's like I need to get back into directing. What Muse is, is it's a headband that is part of like your meditation process. And so they create soundscapes and in the sca- soundscapes while you're meditating, if you're like doing well, you hear birds. The more birds you hear, the better you do. And and because I'm a competitive human, it works really well in convincing me to, to make it a habit, having something to gauge myself on. Um, yeah. I might have to get that Muse headband because it's, that would probably help me. <laughs> yeah. I should get sponsorship. Yes. I've just come to this conclusion that like life is just like proving to yourself that you're capable of doing it. Like, and, and in that comes failure. To be honest, even before my brain aneurysm, that was the reality of the life I chose, right? Like being a filmmaker is a lot of failure. It's a lot of no's and a lot of like work that's unpaid and a lot of just grinding until it happens. And so I was actually trained in this yeah. before it happened because I've had to basically prove to people forever that I'm capable of doing this. So like, why not continue? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is amazing. Can you share like maybe what's next for you? Anything on the horizon? We're writing something together. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, clearly that's. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. Our, our film. I'm ready. I'm already taking notes. Heather's already okay. done the outline. <laughs> Yeah, I'm done that right Do you need me to do like any sort of sizzle of like a trailer or something? You let me know. Yeah, <laughs> We're yeah. on it. We've, got to, we've got something coming for you, Telefilm. We just need a few million. It's going to be fine. I've got a few things. I'm attached to two features that, you know, are trying to figure out financing, trying to figure out casting. It's a tricky world out there right now. And then I have something that I was writing before my brain aneurysm that has been in development, it feels like, for 75 years. That seems about right. I'm not 75 years old. So I'm now just trying to, I'm trying to get people re-excited about it because it's been in development. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you're like, oh, I finally have it and I just sent it out to some people for notes and I'm getting notes and I'm like, oh, maybe I didn't have it as well <laughs> That's like the story of Heather's life right now. <laughs> I didn't know it's called just before this uh, this interview. So I was like, all right, so as soon as we're done talking, I'm going to be going and doing a bunch of notes to then 
get more notes to then yeah. present it and get more notes. So I'm, I'm excited. This week is, this is great. And I'm doing the same way on the editing side. So you wish you got paid for like every note? Well, that would be wonderful. I would be incredibly wealthy at this point if that was how it worked. Yeah. I mean, if I could count my own notes and other people's notes, I think I'd be like David Zasloff level rich. I don't know who that is. That's how rich that person is. That, that name doesn't even ring a bell in my me- oh, sorry. It's a very, money bracket. It's an inside inside joke. No, um, it's he is the new head of Warner Discovery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who has been in the trades as being a bit of a villain. I know the Disney guy. Anyway, yeah, Bob Iger. Uh, no, yeah, he was the villain, and then Bob Iger's like, "Hey, hold my tea," and then he jumped too. in. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> okay. A little, um, anyways, Hollywood break. <laughs> little ad break for the strike. Um, and so, uh, lastly, where can people find you, or find out more about you? Where they can, where maybe see your past work. I think Wet um, used to be on CBC, which is my first feature, and I think the swearing jar is currently on Crave. It's also on Prime for Renting. I noticed that's where I watched it. And I think it's on Stars in the U.S. Uh, I don't know where Webbomb is available in the U.S. They might have deemed it unsuitable because they think it's a porno or something. So who knows? <laughs> Ghost BFF and Running with Violet are two web series I did. And if you look them up online, you can find You can just type them in and they'll be on some YouTube channel. And then I'm on Instagram, LAM underscore writer underscore director. And then, I don't know, you can internet stalk me? I'm not on that. (laughs) Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to share with our audience? No. I think I I we covered it all. Hire me? (laughs) Yeah. Looking for work? Yeah, that's a perfect way to end. I love it. Everyone, if you have not seen... Lindsay's brilliant work on The Swearing Jar. Please, please go watch it. It is beautiful. I cried so much that my clothes were wet. It was in the theater and I did not care. It was a beautiful film and you did an amazing job. Um, So congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I'm sorry about your clothes. I hope you had a dry they were fine. I then I then saw Kate in the hallway. I'm like, oh, Kate, I, I follow you on the internet, and and she's like, I, I know, I follow you too. I'm like, this is really good. Like it was, yeah. it was an awesome time. It was the first time I'd met her in person. I was really I uh, presentable. You make good impressions when you're having emotions. I think that's okay. Yeah. That's great. And Kate would yes. love that. Kate would love that. Kate's an emotional human too. So you're fine. Yes, amazing. I was. Yeah. I, I felt in good company. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah. On that note, just thank you so much for coming on to Brains. And uh, we just really appreciate you sharing your story and being so candid with us. Uh, and I, I know that our audience will appreciate that, too. Thank you. I, I've been listening. I'm now a fan. I've been listening. You guys do some really interesting work. It's lovely what you're doing. So congrats to you guys. Well, thank and- you. It's like a mutual love fest. I love this. Aww, can you love. Can we just, we'll just can we start every morning yeah, like this? Yeah, we'll just, do our bird meditation together. Love. And then yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll get on there. <laughs> and then we'll giggle. Yeah. Yep. I love it. <laughs> It was such a pleasure to chat with Lindsay, and I do want to go get that like device that I can wear on my head to listen to the birds. Oh yeah, Muse. If you can go watch the Swearing Jar, please do. It's, it's a beautiful film. I, I cried a lot. Heather cried a lot. It was good for me. I watched it leading up to the interview. I had I I'd been meaning to watch it, and finally I was like, okay, hey, I'm going to watch it now. And I was coming back from a vacation, so I don't know if you all experience what I do, but like I have like post vacation anxiety because I'm like, oh, I'm back, and now I have to do all the things. So my body and system was very 
discombobulated. And so I watched The Swearing Jar and it was perfect though, because it's it was very cathartic because I got to cry and get some of that that stagnant energy that was in my system out. So it was like perfect timing for me to watch it. And it was a beautiful film and it was great. Yeah, Lindsay did, I think, Kate Hewlett, who's the writer, and it had been originally a play that she actually was would act in, like it was a play, her play. And I just think, and then she wrote it for screen. I think it was beautiful. I think Kate did an amazing job. Um, Kate is an actress as well. Uh, and then Lindsay's direction was beautiful. It was just so well told and has all this intersecting, just the way that it had to be told is just complicated and and it was beautiful and you know, you just were really there with those characters. And so they both did a fabulous job. And all the actors. I mean, everyone. I really appreciated the editing um, on the film because not to give anything away, but it's sort of like it's going between worlds. So I think in the, the cutting, they did a great job. And I feel like it would have been a challenge. I could I could see it. I was watching, trying to turn off my edit brain, but I sometimes can't do that. So I was watching it as an editor in some spots. I was like, this would have been a, a challenging film, but they did a fantastic job. So. Good job, team. Yeah. Speaking of vacation, I'm super excited because in about a week from when this podcast comes out-ish, I'm going to go to the Atlantic provinces for the first time in my life. Oh, fun. And I'm going to go to Nova Scotia. I'm going to go to Prince Edward Island and go to the Potato Museum and do everything at Edgar Gables and also drive through uh, New Brunswick. So I'm counting that. So the only one that we aren't able to get to is Newfoundland, but I feel pretty close. Oh, I loved Halifax. That's the only place I've been to on the East Coast. That that East anyway, but Halifax was so nice. So beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're going to fly into Halifax, stay a night, and then drive up to PEI because you can drive over the bridge and then stay there for a couple nights. But um, my husband has no idea who Anna Gables is. So <laughs> he's he like, did not grow up with Heather Taylor because <laughs> Heather Taylor knows all about Anne Green Gables and therefore yeah. Sarah Taylor also knows all about Anne Green Gables <laughs> through being in the same space as a sister Heather Taylor. <laughs> he was like, could I just like get a crash course? I'm like, is there something I can, I'm like, well, I have the whole book series in my office right now. There's, it's only eight books. And uh, he was like, um, uh, is there a movie? And I was like, there's a three part miniseries. <laughs> That's the first one. <laughs> He needs to learn, though. It's a very Canadian. It's part of it's part of your DNA, Heather. It's part of your DNA. He's going to learn. And also, like, I will say that now I really identify. I always identify a little bit with Anna Green Gables, with Anne Shirley. And really, when I look at it now, I'm like, oh, she 100% has ADHD mm-hmm. and just was never obviously talked about and um, was so vilified. And I felt always so sad and always like I just really identified with her a lot. And now... Mm-hmm. As an adult, I was looking back and reflecting. I'm like, oh, yeah, I had a character that felt like me, but also felt like an out, kind of the outside of things like yeah. I did, too. And so I think there's a love for a character like Anne Shirley, who, despite all of the things that were against her, was always just trying to be just trying to be loved and mm-hmm. just always, mm-hmm. always like allowing herself to have that big imagination and to like really dream. And I think it's just a beautiful thing. So anyway, so John is like, <laughs> when I was trying to figure out when best go to PEI, he's like, we are not making this vacation all about Anna Green Gables. And oh, oh, does he not realize how this is going to go down? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you do when you're there. That's just part of the... I know. That's just what you like, do there. <laughs> we're going to go to this and this and then we're going to go to this lake. He's like, why are we going to a lake? And I'm like, well, that's where they did the Lake of Shining Water. So like we have... <laughs> 
It's just like, oh my God. But it's going to be so good for you. It's going to be oh, amazing really for you to like be in that space. And now that you've had this reflection of like her character to likely, you know, was exhibiting signs of ADHD, like, I don't think you feel like you have an extra connection now. And then you can go there mm. and like feel the, the sea air and oh, it's yeah. going to be great. But I am very excited also about the potato museum. So it's sure. like my favorite things in one place, Anna Green Gables <laughs> and potatoes. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Motion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-A-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather. And I'm your host, Sarah. Bye! Brains are awesome!